And as Putin continues his merciless assault, the United States and our allies and partners continue to work in lockstep to ramp up the economic pressures on Putin and to further isolate Russia in the global stage. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Two weeks into the war of Russian aggression in Ukraine, and the U.S. continues to lead the charge of a united Western world, imposing ever more stringent sanctions on Putin and Russia. Last week, the G7 countries froze Russian foreign exchange reserves held in their respective jurisdictions, severing Russia's access to nearly $400 billion, or over 60% of its reserves, overnight. President Joe Biden announced last week his intention to ban oil imports from Russia, targeting the, quote, main artery of that country's economy. And the U.S. and its G7 allies announced at week's end a move to strip Russia of its favored trade status, solidifying Putin's new role as a world pariah on the order of North Korea or Iraq. But the bevy of moves which have driven the value of the ruble down by more than 40% since the war began begs two questions. First... Will any combination of sanctions, however severe, alter the essentially mad behavior of the Russian president? And second, if the sanctions, in fact, do tank the Russian economy, what then? What impact will it have on the rest of the world? Meanwhile, back in the United States, inflation measures reached a 40-year high in February, and that's without taking account of the war, so they can be expected to rise yet further in March. The effects of sanctions in the U.S., in particular on gas and wheat prices, obscure the picture of what in many ways is a pretty robust economy and consequently present a keen political problem for Biden and the Democratic Party heading into the midterm elections. To help us try to untangle this web of economic disruptions, we have a great set of guests with top-flight economic chops and political savvy. And they are Congressman Ro Khanna. He's in his third term representing California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Among his many committee assignments, he is also the deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and an assistant whip for the Democratic Caucus. Before he served in Congress, Representative Khanna taught economics at Stanford University, law at Santa Clara University, and jurisprudence at San Francisco State University. He also served in the Obama administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Department of Commerce, and he is the author of two books, Entrepreneurial Nation, Why Manufacturing is Still Key to America's Future, and the just published last month, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Congressman, thanks so much for joining, and maybe you can give us a sentence or two about this new book. I really appreciate being on. Uh, the book's thesis is simple. There is $11 trillion of market cap in my district with technology. There are going to be 25 million digital jobs. We need to decentralize and distribute that. 
through the heartland, through the south, think Intel to Ohio. We need more of that around the country to bring prosperity to left out communities. Got it. You know, I was in your district recently and touring around and I was very impressed to learn that I think something like 50, 60 percent were not born in the district and have all migrated there for the sort of modern day gold rush of Silicon Valley. It's an extraordinary district, uh, a large part foreign born, the only Asian majority district in the continental United States and also a significant Latino population, African-American population, Caucasian population. So we're a true melting pot. Thanks. All right. Professor Justin Walfers, a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan, also a visiting professor of economics at the University of Sydney, as well as a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research and a contributing columnist for the New York Times. 2014, he was named by the IMF as one of the 25 economists under 45, shaping the way we think about the global economy. Professor Walfers, thanks so much for joining Talking Feds. Always a joy to talk economics, mate. <laughs> and Stephanie Rule, a senior business analyst at NBC News and host of the 11th Hour, which airs weekdays at 11 p.m. on MSNBC. She previously was editor-at-large for Bloomberg News. Before becoming a journalist, she spent 14 years in the finance industry at Credit Suisse, and Deutsche Bank. So as she puts it, she went from banker to anchor. She remains very active in women's leadership development. She founded the corporate investment bank Women's Network and is a co-chair of the Women on Wall Street Steering Committee. Stephanie Rule, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Feds today. I am sorry you took all of that airtime. I mean, it's so (laughs) nice of you, but like, you don't have to. My husband's like, gagging next to me hearing all that. You should see what we edited out. All right, let's start with the war. So it's clear that I think it's fairly called the war of Russian aggression is imposing seismic economic effects, both intended and collateral on Russia, certainly Ukraine, certainly the US, Europe, really the rest of the world. Let's start with Russia. So propelled by the sanctions, the rubles plunged by over 40% since the beginning of the war. A series of large retail companies have now stopped doing business in Russia. And just at the end of last week, Biden and Europe are moving to strip Russia of trade relations status, essentially treating it like a pariah country as a sort of North Korea. The conventional wisdom has been that for all the surprises he may have encountered, the sanctions is one thing that Putin was prepared for and was essentially indifferent to. But Is there not a limit on how much economic damage he can absorb? There certainly doesn't seem to be. I mean, Putin has never, ever cared if his country is suffering economically. Since he's been in power, there's no industries that have developed or grown, right? It's wheat and it's oil and gas. That's about it. He has managed to become one of the richest people on the planet, right? Not just like, oh, in the region, on the planet. He doesn't care. As aggressive and punishing as these economic sanctions may be, every single thing we do, what's the response? Well, Putin's likely going to double down, and he does. And at this point, it really seems like unless the focus is how do we remove this man from power, with the exception of that, no matter what we or any of our Western allies do, he's just going deeper and farther. And economically, I would say my biggest concern is What happens if China really does align with Putin? Thus far, 
We haven't heard Xi say that much. But on Chinese state-run media right now, they're pushing the same Putin propaganda lies. So while we might make fun of Putin and say like, oh, he thinks he's some big superpower. Sure, he is from a nuclear standpoint, but economically, great. Their economy is the size of New York. That will not be the case if China really does back them. That's when things could get majorly scary. I just think you want to scale the size of the damage that's being done over there in Russia. The question is not whether we're going to cause a recession. The question is whether it's going to cause a depression. And actually what's going on right now, really what they're doing there, we're about to call out the scorekeepers and ask exactly how you define a depression. Because if GDP declines by 15%, some economists will call it the D word, others won't. Either way, it's going to impose tremendous suffering on the Russian people. Another way of scaling this is to say that the economic shock in Russia is larger than the COVID recession. And we've all had a pretty miserable couple of years right now. And the Russian people are about to go through something like that, but both bigger and deeper and potentially with even larger long run scarring effects. To Stephanie's point, it is true that China to date has been kind of arms length, but they certainly have the power to cushion Russia for most of the shocks. But one thing I think Putin assumed is that there'd be no real serious response at home, that everyone was basically either loyal or at least obeying. But the sanctions will probably result in very strong unemployment there. The government and companies might not be able to raise capital to pay employees. And then severe lifestyle changes in what's become a kind of happily modern country with all the gadgets that we enjoy in the West. Is there no amount of pain on the people that would result in a popular revolt? I think the idea that we're going to be able to have regime change in Russia is not what U.S. policy should be based on, because I don't know how realistic that is. The focus, in my view, has to be how do we have continued punishing sanctions on Putin, continued uh, unity among our European allies and us. It would be good if we could get India on board as well to isolate Putin as much as possible to continue to arm the Ukrainians so that it's clear that this is going to be Russia's Afghanistan, that they're not going to be able to annex Ukraine as much as they unfortunately can destroy Ukraine. The annexation won't be possible. And then to have aggressive diplomacy at the same time to see if there can be an off-ramp and a ceasefire. The reality is that I don't think there's any chance Putin succeeds in annexation. The question is, if this war doesn't stop, how much damage does he do in terms of the thousands of Ukrainians are going to get killed and in terms of the destruction of that country? But I would say this notion that these diplomatic talks are going on between Ukrainian diplomats and Russian diplomats, but like they had talks again, but there was no development. Of course, there's no development. Just yesterday, Lavrov was saying, no, it's not us bombing the hospitals. It absolutely is. And we can't forget what we think, how long before the Russian people really stand up and revolt. And what we have seen, a lot of young people in the streets standing up and protesting, they're just a portion of the population. And Russia, for the most part, really is in an information vacuum. Just last week, the harsher laws that were put in place against journalists, almost every Western journalistic outlet left Russia a week ago because of these new restrictive laws. So, so many Russians, especially rural ones and older ones, have no idea what's really happening. And Putin, everything negative that they're seeing, he just blames on Ukraine or the West. 
so there's a fairly sharp, I think, contrast between what you're saying, Congressman, and what Stephanie came out of the box with, which is essentially, unless and until he's out, nothing's going to really break through. And I think your argument is we can't be making policy on that basis. So I'm wondering how one even squares that circle. I want to try and square the circle a little between yeah. Stephanie and the congressman. The congressman says we want enough pressure on Putin. He gives up. Stephanie says, well, the, the population's not seeing any pressure because they're not seeing any news. So here's the goofiest idea you've ever heard. The US's major weapon should be we give VPN to every Russian, give them access to other news sources. Now, There's no serious reason to think there'd be enormous take-up, but I think that Stephanie's right to say you're not going to see political pressure in Russia until you see information break through, and resolving that is a critical issue. We have Stephanie impressed and mulling it over, I can report to the listeners. I am. I wouldn't say goofy. I think it's a creative idea that could be amazing. (laughs) But do I think that Putin's going to stop at Ukraine? Absolutely not. This is a mission for world domination and delusions of grandeur. I don't think he's going to stop. Let's just say he does. He's going to keep going. There, there's no scenario where he's, oh, we're all set. No. So this is sort of like 33, but I, I totally endorse the position. You shouldn't go too quickly to Nazi analogies. But you think anything that can be done to remove him from the world, that's the only solution. As long as Vladimir Putin is in power. That's what I mean. He is not going to dial back. He's not going to retreat, retreat none of it. He needs to leave that position. I think the president's policy has been, in my view, absolutely correct, which is we're going to do everything we possibly can to put crushing sanctions in a unified position against Putin. But we've made it very clear we're not at war with Russia. Obviously, talking about deposing Putin or assassinating Putin would be putting us at war with Russia. And the president's been very clear we're not at war with them. But if they attack a NATO country, we will be at war with them. And he has put 12,000 troops in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Uh, And that's the red line. And he's been pretty explicit. Uh, If if Putin attacks a NATO country, they're at war with the United States. But Ukraine, while we stand with them, we're not at war with Russia. And I think that that is the prudent approach that the president's taken. I mean, impressive once again at the end of the week when he really marshaled uh, Europe allies in the downgrading of their trade status, especially after the Trump years when there was some doubt about the leadership capacity and the trust in Europe, I think he has been very leading on the world stage. So, Stephanie, I am hearing a sort of consensus view, if I can put it there, of like, A, until he's gone, the parade of horribles continue, and B, there's no real sanctions regime that'll do anything more than impose misery that will make him double down and double down again. So that strikes me as an insoluble little riddle. Is there a way of getting him out that is short of actual war with Russia? I don't know the answer to that. I think I would agree with the congressman that the president, along with our NATO allies, it's amazing the coordination we have seen in just the last three weeks. They're doing from a a risk-adjusted basis the absolute best moves because you are dealing with a madman on the other side. And for us to go full bore, it sure sounds like, hey, just go no fly zone, right? That sounds like really cut and dry and easy. It's absolutely not. And you make a move like that, that is the closest thing we're doing to possibly instigating 
World War III, the use of nuclear weapons, which absolutely no one wants to happen. Yeah. I mean, that is an act of war. It's a formal act of war. Yeah. So the president thus far is making all the right moves. But I'm just saying on the other side, you're not dealing with someone that there could be any diplomatic efforts with. This is a terrorist. Well, I think there's an end of sorts, though, a, a glum one. And it does raise the question that we'll just leave out there. How long will this continue, especially if, as Stephanie says, Ukraine won't be a satisfactory trophy for him? OK, let's turn to back home to the United States for a moment. First, the decision to ban Russian oil imports. Let me ask you, Representative Conant, that was something you pushed for. Even though they don't sell that much to us, Europe is the whole game there. But you push for it strongly. Why did you think it was so important? We should not be dependent on petro states, whether that's Russia, whether that's Saudi Arabia, whether that's Iran or Venezuela. It gives them way too much leverage in world affairs. And that's why long term, we need a moonshot in renewable energy. If President Kennedy said we have to go to the moon to beat the Soviets, today we need a moonshot on renewable energy. To beat the petro states. In the short term, I support an increase in production because, you know, a moonshot's going to take years and we have to figure out how we get gas prices down. This is not just my view on banning Russian imports. Uh, it was a remarkably bipartisan. I think you had uh, overwhelming support in both the House and Senate for it. Everyone does seem in line in the political sphere. Not so much. And Stephanie, you've been leading here and revealing it in the corporate sphere. So just at the end of last week, you tweeted out that Goldman Sachs is cashing in on the crisis. If you're a vulture, just be a vulture, but don't come pretend otherwise. And I think some of big banks haven't fully cut the ties with Russia. So how much of a departure from the otherwise strong boycott of Russia are you seeing in the big, especially financial institutions, and how much do you think it undercuts from the overall effectiveness of what the government's doing? Well, I would say two things. First, in complete agreement with the congressman that this is the time that we can go with the moonshot and focus on renewables. You're seeing it in Europe. This week, the EU is really looking to speed up their green plan by a decade. The fact that we're so oil dependent and that we have to go hat in hand to countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Iran, Russia. We don't want to be in a position like that. Unfortunately, our own government doesn't have consensus. This week, while we should be focusing on renewables, the state of Florida reversed tax subsidies for going solar. So that is, is hugely disappointing. We also have to remember, even if we can ramp up supply because we don't actually use that much from Russia, we don't set the price. It's a global price. And the last point around corporations, you are seeing a lot of corporations pull out of Russia. I think the Goldman Sachs one is an outlier, but it's hugely disappointing because you've got banks like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan sort of wrapping themselves in an American flag saying, we are leaving business in Russia. We are allies with all these other corporates and blah, 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 blah. But let's be clear. They are removing their investment banking operations from Russia while there's none to be had. And right now, what is Goldman Sachs doing? So there's somewhat of a loophole in that, like when we sanctioned Venezuela a few years ago, in addition to sanctioning them, also trading Venezuelan securities were sanctioned. We haven't done that in the case of Russia because you kind of want to give it some time. If you suddenly freeze trading those securities, that could be really difficult. And so they're giving it time. And during this period of time, what is Goldman Sachs doing? Well, their distressed trading operations are buying up Russian bonds and they are pitching trades to distressed 
hedge funds. If that isn't disgusting, I don't know what is. Because this is what distressed hedge funds do, right? They come in, they swoop in, and they buy things on the cheap. This isn't just a company going bankrupt. It's completely reprehensible that Goldman Sachs is pitching basis trades, right? These are arbitrage opportunities. Hey, there's a market dislocation between credit derivatives and the underlying bonds. Would you like to buy them? They're offering this to customers over a war. And it's so disgusting to me. And yep, it's completely legal. And my issue with it is, and you said it before, hey, Goldman Sachs, if you're a vulture, be a vulture, own it. That's who you are in the animal kingdom. But let's stop pretending to rebrand ourselves with new slogans and inclusion and diversity. Bullshit. Okay. Just be the beast that you are. At least Deutsche Bank, where I used to work, which is a reprehensible bank, at least Deutsche <laughs> Bank yesterday said, you know what? We ain't leaving Russia. Doesn't work for us. I actually have more respect for that craven behavior because they own the fact like, yep, we run at the dog track. That's who we are. Goldman Sachs pretending we're out of Russia. Well, meanwhile, they're trading hundreds of millions of Russian bonds is vile. Can I make the mistake of adding a note of optimism here? Yeah, I think you're just a contrarian, period, right? I, I enjoy every part of this. I'm not sure how much my friends in the foreign policy community understand how quickly the U.S. is going to walk away from conventional energy sources. Yeah, th this is a big point. Go ahead. Within a decade, maybe. So my family, literally this week, we are installing solar panels. And I'm not doing that because of concerns about petrostates. I'm doing that because the benefits exceed the costs. It will actually line my bottom line, my family's budget. The ROI is very, very high. And you look at any of the graphs of like the improving productivity of wind or of solar or any of the renewables, the productivity of these things is going through the roof at the same time that the price is sinking. So if it's a good deal for me today, it's a good deal for everyone over the next few years. And so our dependence on foreign energy sources already, you know, we're largely energy independent, but our dependence on carbon fuels at all is going to decline dramatically over the next decade, which is often the time frame you think about these foreign policy questions in. But let me just push back and give what I take to be the party line against this moonshot idea. We need to make the pivot point and dramatically, but is it right now when there's so much dependence on just dirty old oil and gas that Russia sells it's a question of timing? I think we have to talk very clearly between the short term and the long term. I mean, when Kennedy called for getting to, to the moon, it was over a decade. And I think we say over the next decade, we have to have a, a real push for renewable energy. I think you could tell that right now to the American public. And to make it clear, if it was just us producing oil, by the way, that wouldn't diminish the value in the petro states in Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, because they have a lot of oil. If we're doing something totally new, if it's solar, if it's wind, if it's green hydrogen, if it's fusion, that they can't compete with us on. It would really sink them and their leverage. And I think that has to be uh, the case that the president makes. And then separately, I think we have to be honest with people that that's not enough to deal with the short term. And right now, people are seeing five, six bucks gas. I don't think you can go say, go get an electric car or let's do electric vehicles to them. They say, what are you talking about? I don't want to be paying $60, dollars $80 $80 at the pump. And so short term, I'm fine with an increase in production. And I think we have to figure out how we get the price of gas lower or at the least put, get more money in working class folks' uh, pockets. What do you think about a suspension of the gasoline tax, which I think is, I want to say, $0.18 cents a gallon? The dumbest idea ever. 
Because? Some price changes and this price turns out to be politically sensitive. And so therefore we're going to make people who buy that good whole. The price of bread also rose. Why aren't we cutting the tax on bread? You know, the price of just about everything's going up, but gas is the only thing we're talking about a gas tax on. And you know what? I care a lot about things like bread and eggs, gas. If you wanted to help working class families get through a difficult moment, why would you have a subsidy that went to everyone who drives in proportion to how far they drive, in proportion to how fuel inefficient their car is. Says the man from Michigan. Yeah, good point. Yeah, my neighbors drive SUVs to their jobs, some of them on very healthy incomes and would gain a lot from a gas tax holiday. Urban poor families who take the bus to work get nothing from it. It's crazy. All right, what about... Representative Kana, you introduced a bill last week, the big oil windfalls profit tax with Senator Whitehouse. What's the idea there and how big an impact do you think it could have? Well, I know the economists are split on this, but Sheldon, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, and I believe very strongly in it. And the idea is simple. You've had oil companies making billions and billions of dollars of profit. And the sense is that if they're going to charge more than four bucks or so for gas, then there should be a tax on the windfall profits, and then that tax should be going as checks to working Americans. And the idea is this will incentivize them to not charge over four bucks because they won't want to pay the tax. It's a proposal that uh, Keir Starmer, at the, the UK labor leader, has proposed, and that European Union actually has proposed as well, allowing every country to do it, and basically was modeled after those proposals. It's exactly the right response if what you think is that gasoline prices are high because of excess profiteering by gas companies. Now, what's the evidence on that? I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like the key reason gas prices are high is because oil got expensive. And so their input prices go up, their output prices go up. I get what I just said is never going to win me a populist election because we all like to hate Shell and, and so on. But I don't know. I want to see a little more evidence before I'd start to walk down that path. Just like it's so politically popular. We're going to go after the big guys. We're going to go after the grocery stores. Have you seen grocery prices? Talk to a grocery store. Grocery margins are razor thin and we need to get practical. And while sending checks certainly was something to do in the short, short, short term when we were in crisis during COVID, if there's money to go around, spend that money on long-term investments like better public transportation infrastructure in urban and rural settings rather than just let me just cut you another check because things are getting so expensive build a stronger economic foundation in this country so we're not in a position where people are in economic peril and we have to just give them checks to get through this moment and get through this time i'll just add to the demagogic politics here the Republican position seems especially tortured and counterproductive. There's basically, you know, a scream on their part for an oil ban and for pushing back on Russia. And then they lie clearly in wait to, to absolutely pounce on Biden when prices go up. Let's be really clear with what Republicans are doing. This whole like Republicans are standing with Democrats and they really want this ban on oil. Bullshit. They want it for this minute and wait two days, three days, three weeks. And as soon as gas prices go up and inflation goes up further as a result, they're going to turn around and use this against Biden in the midterms to say, look, everything costs so much more money. I don't think they're waiting just two or three days. I think they're already basically saying it. Inflation's already being laid at his door, for example. 
Justin, you just identified kind of irrational psychology. I think we're finding that out with respect to inflation in particular. My sense is it's actually revising classical economics that inflation has a bigger impact than it ought to on purely rational people. And this is part of it, too. So, you know, Biden has to be prepared for that kind of unfair attack. That's why I think we have to be very aggressive in going after Putin and the big oil companies to blame uh, inflation on them. I think otherwise you're a sitting duck where the Republicans are going to blame the lack of drilling. And it makes no sense. I mean, Keystone wouldn't even be producing but for another year, even if Biden had approved it. But I think in politics, if you're not on the offense, you're getting slaughtered. And so the Democrats need an offensive message and then an aspirational message on a green energy program. But if we're not defining the villains for who's responsible for the gas prices, I think the Republicans will use that as a cudgel in the midterms. I really agree. And so they're calling it the Putin gas tax hike in a sort of effective, unusually compact message from the White House. It might be a political equilibrium, but it's also a sad equilibrium if the best response to populist nonsense is populist nonsense. I don't have great advice for the congressman on how to go out and sell it, but I think, you know, saying it's all the big oil companies when it probably really isn't and expecting the Republicans to do anything other than criticize the president. Look, why don't we just take it as given they're going to criticize the president? If it's not over gas prices, it'll be over something else. That's the political price that they have to pay. And in some sense, I'm a little more optimistic than Stephanie, that the Republicans are willing to stand with the Democrats around sanctions is actually spending some political capital. And it's a good thing for the current moment. And of course, Democrats don't like being criticized for the implications of that, but they're going to get criticized anyway. If it's not one thing, it's another. I mean, one thing could actually be the difference between losing and winning the midterm. So I understand their ire and concern about it. I want to talk for one second, what you said about wheat prices and food, Justin. We haven't talked about the countries other than Europe, Russia, Ukraine. You know, Russia and Ukraine combined account for more than a quarter of the world's wheat exports. And wheat prices are, I think they're up 50%. What impact will this all be having on poorer countries in which families spend a far higher percentage of their income on food? Let me start by answering the question you didn't ask, which is what effect will it have in the US? And the answer is remarkably small. It turns out that wheat is a very small part of the costs of bringing you your cornflakes. Well, actually corn is too. (laughs) Wheat is a small part of your bread, your breakfast cereal. If you think about the cost, there's a whole bunch of other costs, transportation, labor, and so on. And so even a, a big hike in wheat prices doesn't have a big effect here. And bread is a tiny portion of the budget of American consumers. This is where we worry, though, when we think about poorer countries where food is a a much bigger share of the budget. The effect on food prices probably won't be anywhere near as dramatic as the effect on the commodity price, but still for people just trying to get by, it's a big deal. It's now time for our sidebar feature, which this week will explain the legal case involving Jean Carroll, who says that President Trump defamed her when he denied having assaulted her many years ago. And the particular issue of whether the Department of Justice can represent Trump or whether Trump will need to defend it personally, which means, among other things, sitting for a deposition. And to explain it to us, I am really thrilled. It is Martina Navratilova. 
I was a very big sports fan as a boy. She won 59 Grand Slam titles over the course of her decades-long career, including nine Wimbledon championships. In 2006, she became the oldest player to ever win a Grand Slam at age 49. And over the course of her career, she was named WTA's Tour Player of the Year seven times and AP's Female Athlete of the Year and one of the top 40 athletes of all time by Sports Illustrated. Oh, and one more thing. She was especially loved by my late father, who would never miss a match of her and also rooted with all his heart for her victory. So this one also for him, Martina Navratilova, discussing the legal ins and outs of the Gene Carroll case. Was Trump acting in the scope of his employment when he denied raping Gene E. Carroll? To the surprise of many, Biden's Department of Justice decided last year to appeal a federal trial court decision in a lawsuit filed by Gene E. Carroll, who claimed in a 2019 book that President Trump raped her in a department store in the 1990s. Carroll's lawsuit is against Trump personally for defamation. After Carroll's rape charges came to light, Trump denied them in an interview with The Hill, adding that he would never have raped her because she's not my type. Carol sued, saying Trump lied and hurt her reputation. Under federal law, if a federal employee is sued for conduct he undertook in the scope of his employment, the case is considered to be against the United States, not the employee, and the government is obligated to take over the defense. Last fall, the Department of Justice entered Carol's case, saying it had the right and duty to step into Trump's shoes and defend against the claim. After Trump's DOJ became involved in the case, the federal trial court issued a long and scholarly opinion rejecting the department's position. The court held that Trump was not acting in the scope of his employment when he allegedly defamed Carroll. Then, later last year, the court refused the DOJ's request to stay, or freeze, the case while it appealed the judge's order about the scope of employment. In December, the Court of Appeals heard arguments on the merits, and its decision is expected any time. Carroll's case is factually unique because it involves the president, but it entails the same legal analysis that would be applied in a suit against, say, a postal carrier or any other Fed. Now, it's up to the federal appeals court to decide whether Trump was acting within the scope of his employment when he thrashed Carroll, as the current DOJ continues to argue, or whether he was outside the scope as the federal trial court held. Ask yourself, as the appeals court is asking itself, was Trump doing the sort of job for which he was elected when he said, Carol is not my type? Was that him being president or him being Donald Trump, private citizen? We know from the President Clinton case that some things presidents do are not part of their official job duties. So the question is how Trump's conduct fits within the president's job description. The stakes here are high because the United States has sovereign immunity meaning it cannot be sued for a defamation claim. So, if the court permits the government to take over Carroll's case, the case effectively ends then and there. If, on the other hand, the federal court disagrees, the case returns to the state court where it started and where things were looking pretty good for Carroll. For Talking Feds, in case you didn't recognize the voice or the accent, I'm Martina Navratilova. Thanks so much to the great Martina Navratilova for explaining that legal puzzle. 
Martina now provides coverage of the Grand Slams for the Tennis Channel and is an ambassador for the WTA. You can follow her on Twitter, at Martina, what more need be said, at Martina, M-A-R-T-I-N-A. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we whip through the whiskeys to find out the difference between the three main types, scotch, bourbon, and rye. Whiskey, spelled without an E, is produced in Scotland and Canada, whereas whiskey, spelled with an E, means it's produced in the U.S. and Ireland and includes scotch, bourbon, and rye. It's these grains that help define which type of whiskey it will become before it eventually lands among the thousands of bottles on the shelves at your local Total Wine & More. Now, let's talk about scotch. Scotch is typically made from malted barley, blended with other grains, and that helps give it a little bit of a bite, making it more in an acquired taste. Bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn, produced in the U.S. and aged in new charred oak barrels. The oak gives this brown liquid its signature sweet flavor. And then there's rye, which must be made from at least, yep, you guessed it, 51% rye. Rye is a type of grass in the wheat family that has a spicy, edgier flavor, adding a little extra kick you may not find in a bourbon. For a true test of bourbon versus rye, we recommend you pop into Total Wine, maybe grab a bottle of scotch while you're here. But to really get to know the differences in scotch, bourbon, and rye, start by talking to the guides at Total Wine and More, who are more than happy to talk day or night about whiskey, with or without an E. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right. Let's spend the balance of our time focused more directly on the domestic economy, which, of course, is bound up in the war. But this last week, the Consumer Price Index, we learned, rose by 7.9% through February, the fastest pace of annual inflation in 40 years. Doesn't really even take account of most of the surge in gas prices. So let's just start with the bridge question. What part of this of the inflation problem is caused by the war and the sanctions and as opposed to underlying pressures in the American economy, which were, of course, already being brought to bear before the war began? The short answer is at this point, nothing. What you saw was the February CPI numbers, which is before the sanctions really came through. So all of this is our current economic expansion combined with the truly weird world economy that we live in right now, which is, you know, this is still a very sick economy recovering from a very strange past two years. The war may have an effect, but it will be over the next six months. I would just say it's a sick-ish economy, and it's been a very strange couple of years, right? Remember, household savings hit a record high during COVID because there was nowhere for us to spend our disposable income. And one of the things that keeps prices high is people's willingness to pay those high prices. You know, whatever we're going on and on about the supply chain, people can't get their dishwashers and refrigerators. Yes, it's because of the supply chain, 
but it's also because we have a record number of people renovating their kitchens. <laughs> people saved a huge amount of money. And I'm not saying that's everyone. People are absolutely economically suffering. But this bifurcated economy that we had before COVID, the haves and the have nots have only worsened. And we still have lots of people that are working from home that are continuing to save. And so it was just Chuck Schumer this week talking about more economic COVID relief. Remember, the more money that gets pumped into the system, that's only contributing to the inflationary environment. And again, while there are people that are suffering, it's hard for me to see or rationalize why we would be offering more COVID economic relief. It just doesn't seem like something we long-term need. If anything, let's put our resources on more oversight of lots of the COVID money that went out over the last two years. Well, now you're talking my tune because I still practice some law and it has to do with fraud against the government. And talk about low-hanging fruit, billions and billions of fraud has been lost to that. It's like in the American Rescue Plan, there was $30 billion with a B carved out for restaurants. And that's in addition to the PPP loans the year before, 30 billion. And while the government didn't disseminate that money in a very equitable manner, there were people who got none, there's people who got a ton. I get calls from restaurants all the time saying, we need more money from the government. Are you kidding me? You got $30 billion last year. And we're forgetting because we are getting really used to this economic safety net, whether it's the Fed keeping rates at zero or getting economic support. Every year, pre-COVID, businesses fail, businesses open. Restaurant business is one of the key industries that you see businesses fail every single year. And we cannot get ourselves to a place where we're saying, uh-oh, it's raining outside. If the government doesn't provide us with umbrellas, we simply can't leave. At some point, we've got to say things are difficult. We as a government have provided a lot of economic support. The infrastructure plan that is now law, we haven't even seen that money get spent. There's still money from the American Rescue Plan that's going to get spent. I'm thrilled about that. So let's see more of this money go to work before we spend more. The life of an anchor. You get calls from restaurants all the time. A restaurant can pick up the phone and say, give me Stephanie rule. Because, because a- think about it. During COVID, so many restaurants came on TV, yet none of them wanted. Whenever I ask those restaurants now, I say, so I just wanted to ask you now that you are allowed to have outside seating and inside seating. And you're at 100% capacity, but really you're now at 200% capacity. What do you think about that? Because all of these cities and towns that have changed their ordinances, so now we can have outside seating, but restaurants don't really want to talk about that. They like to say, oh, service is really bad because of the labor shortage, not because they now have twice as many diners and the same size kitchen. I agree that we need better oversight and that there was some fraud and waste. But here's one thing that Americans should take from all the concern that there's dysfunction in Washington, that there's polarization, that our government doesn't work on a bipartisan basis. Over the last two years, with a Republican president and a Democratic president, this Congress and the president managed to inject $5 trillion into the economy with an economic recovery that is pretty impressive. And it shows that there is a resilience to American institutions and a functionality to American government that the American people should be proud of, regardless of your party. And what we really need to do, in my view now, is increase the productive capacity of America. And the president is doing that with this Compete Act, where we're going to be building semiconductors. We're going to be investing in making things in the United States. Uh, These are bipartisan initiatives that can create jobs, explore growth. And that public-private partnership has always been 
to the way uh, America has grown. But I'm much more bullish on the American future and the prospect of American government to function than a lot of skeptics are. I think it's a good opportunity to mention the Competes Act. You know, this is something that's been a signature item of yours, Representative Connell. Can you just give your kind of sense of how that fits into what you're saying? Well, the Competes Act is going to be the largest increase in science and technology funding since the Kennedy years. And it was a bipartisan initiative started with the Endless Frontier, Senator Schubert, myself, Representative Gallagher, and Senator Young. Uh, there are three points to it. One, it's not just about inventing things in the United States. We didn't invent the automobile or the jet engine. We figured out the mass production. We actually invented the semiconductor chip, but the mass production is taking place in Taiwan. The Competes Act will allow for mass production to start taking place in high technology in the United States. Again, Intel to Ohio, $20 billion. You talked to Pat Gelsinger. It's largely in anticipation of the Competes Act passing. Two, the bill will have these tech hubs distributed across the country. So it's not all in Silicon Valley or Massachusetts or New York. Uh, This is going to be part of the economic revival of the country. And three, it is going to focus, like I said, not just on the theoretical research, but the commercialization and production in this country. I think one of the lessons of COVID is we've got to produce more things in the United States. Oh, I wanted to endorse what Congressman Kanna said about just the extraordinary government response to the COVID recession. You go back to February of 2020, and if I had one request, it would have been that the government tries to err on doing too much rather than too little. And given the experience of our very slow response to the uh, global financial crisis a, a decade earlier, I would have been very pessimistic about the likelihood of that happening. So the fiscal and monetary response were just absolutely first rate. And it's possible we somewhat erred. If there's a criticism, it's that we did too much. But by jingo, it's the first time we've made that mistake in a long time. And it's much better to make that mistake than to have left millions of people unemployed. So it really has been quite a striking period in terms of economic policy. A couple quick closeout questions. Given the economic uncertainty with the war, does anybody see any prospect that the Fed will alter its plans, which everyone has been assuming entail beginning to raise interest rates as early as next week? I think it was convenient that uh, Powell didn't uh, say that he wanted to raise rates until after he was confirmed, which makes me think that everyone has a little bit of a politician in them. And uh, it seems like he's going to stick to what he said, although I think the Fed's independent and certainly not for me to tell them what to do. Let me just make one analytic point. What matters for the economy is not the nominal interest rate, which is what Powell's talking about, but the real interest rate, which is the interest rate less inflation. As inflation has gone up, that has mechanically pushed the real interest rate down. So if the Fed even just wanted to maintain how much it's stimulating the economy, it has to push the nominal rate up just to keep pace with inflation expectations. So a reframing of what's about to happen is let's not worry too much because it's the Fed actually just trying to stand still for a little while. That's a great point. And then finally, I just wanted to pick up on Stephanie and Justin's point about our weird last two years and the COVID recession. Would you say we have now reached the point where COVID is no longer an important factor in the American economy? Is that basically behind us in terms of economic policy? I'm going to talk about a a tiny place in it, and that's sort of around return to work. So we just heard from the president the other day in the State of the Union talking about federal employees going back to work. The sooner people go back to the office, that'll be better for our cities, better for our communities. I think it's going to be hard for employees to argue they don't want to go back to the office because they don't feel COVID safe. 
we're kind of past that. However, it's not the responsibility of everyday employees to say, oh, I need to go back to the office so I can support the local restaurant and dry cleaners. And given the labor shortage that we have, and given that we're facing inflation, high gas prices, it costs more to go to Starbucks and get your afternoon salad, and companies have to be creative about how to keep their employees. This is a real time to be creative about what the future of work looks like. And unlike during COVID, where we had to say, listen, everybody has to work from home. We're not going to do such intense performance reviews. No, if people who are working from home are sucking at their job, fire them. However, make this a chance to be creative and really think about who can work from home. We often say, how are you going to get top talent to want to go work for, for, let's say, government agencies? How is the IRS going to get the best people to go work at the IRS rather than for a private accounting firm? Well, if you let those people work from home rather than commuting in an hour and a half, well, then guess what? You might get a lot of really talented people and you're really going to open up the workforce. You know, women, different people who have had very limited job opportunities because of their family arrangements. Now that we've proven during COVID, you can be very productive. Now is a moment as we get past COVID, we can't just say, oh, I don't feel safe going back to work yet. I'm going to stay home. No, this is a chance for employers to say, how do I reimagine work for top performing people? Yeah, I agree completely with Stephanie in terms of the opportunity to reimagine work. And I think we have a huge obligation to still think of the impact that COVID has had on on moms, you know, I say this as a dad seeing young kids, but, you know, first of all, the kids under five are still not vaccinated. Many moms have not been able to get back to work. And this is means, in my view, we, we failed America's moms, not having any childcare, not having flexible work environments, not getting paid family leave. And certainly we ought to be thinking about how we allow more moms to have flexibility of working from home if that's what they want. But that is a big untold story. Reshma Sojani has a, an entire book on this theme. And I think it's something that we have not delivered in Congress, at least until now. I think the congressman's exactly right. And I want to just add one macroeconomic thing, which is the macroeconomic conditions that will allow the reimagining of work will be macro conditions in which workers are incredibly empowered. They are right now because the economy's running pretty hot. So if we want to see this sort of stuff start to organically occur, we got to keep it running hot. All right. We are out of time. I'm really sorry to say, because I'm I've learned a ton in the last hour in preparing for it. We just have a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five. We take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. This comes from Stephanie's tweet. She's been waxing nostalgic on this fair about beef tacos and hickory farm samples. So here's the question. What sanctions from cryptocurrency to Netflix to Big Macs would make you personally say uncle? I'm going to go with with LinkedIn. But here, the sanction would be that they'd leave it on. <laughs> I don't think I have one. My issue with beef tacos has little to do with sanctions. It's my sadness over the fact that a ground beef tacos no longer exists on restaurant menus. Well, there you go. You can get a fish taco. You can get a shrimp taco. You can get a carne asada taco. You just can't get a ground beef taco outside of high school cafeteria or my kitchen on a Tuesday night. And I'd like a comeback of the ground beef talk. Somebody has to do something about this. I'm here to fight for it. Maybe the congressman has more of them because he lives in California. I don't know. I, I guess I, I wouldn't want to sanction Russian literature. They still give us Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov. Let's not demonize the whole culture. But that would be uh, my only caveat. <laughs> All right. 
So, boy, it's a tough one. I'll go with Klondike's or, if they could sanction this, maybe they can, California Sunshine. All right, we are out of time. Thank you so much to Representative Ro Khanna, Justin Wolfers, and Stephanie Rule. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. A reminder that we are available on the Spectrum News app. The app provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics for supporters. And these aren't simply ad-free episodes or outtakes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with Hague prosecutor Alex Whiting about the process that could, but probably won't, result in criminal charges in the International Court of Justice against Vladimir Putin. With Adam Smith, one of the world's experts perhaps its premier expert on sanctions against Russia about the workings of the whole sanctions regime against Putin and Russia and a extended discussion with Vanita Gupta, the third ranking official in the Department of Justice on the occasion of the one year anniversary of Attorney General Merrick Garland. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the great and much-loved Martina Navratilova for explaining the Jean Carroll case in our sidebar today. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Talking Feds.